Okay, welcome to the United Pubcast, another very special edition of the Pubcast because it is a Sancho free zone, Gareth Bale free zone, Oli in, Oli out, all that, none of that transfer debate. Finally, we get to sit down with another former player we're very privileged to, and not just a former player, but a Premier League winner in Luke Chadwick. How are you, mate? Yeah, all good, thanks, Tom. How are you? Yeah, very good. There's a very early start over in you say you live in Cambridge at the moment, so very, it's 4.30 here in the afternoon, but an early rise for you. What was for breakfast this morning? Just a cup of tea, cup of tea to start the day. I'll probably um, grab a bowl of porridge or something after we've had a chat. No, all sounds good. Now, we might as well get in because a few listeners have sent through in some questions and um, we do really sort of appreciate former players or pundits, etc. coming on our podcast because it does give a very different view and especially... As much as we love talking about all the transfers and football, it does this time of year does get a little bit tedious and a little bit boring. So it is very good and welcome into here some very unique stories, which I'm sure you will have. But um, I think just start on sort of how you joined United as a young player. Sort of how did that come through? Like what was your situation? Sort of when you first started football, who did you support? How did United first come into contact with you, etc.? Yes, I obviously live in a little village just outside Cambridge, so quite a long way from Manchester. I started playing footy as an under-nine player and sort of scored a lot of goals as a kid just playing in local football. Then when I was an under-13, I signed as a, a schoolboy at Arsenal and played there for a season. It went too far from my house. And as an under-14, I was playing for my district like area team and scoring a lot of goals and that's where Man United saw me and invited me up for a trial in the school holidays. I went up to Manchester, absolutely loved it, incredible football club, incredible environment to play in and they signed me off the back of that one week trial and after that I used to just travel up to Manchester at the weekend while I was at school and then every school holiday I'd go and stay up there and train with a with a youth team with the other young players. And when I left school at 16 is when I moved up full time to live in Diggs and signed as a YTS player on a two year scholarship at 16 to 18. So that's how it it all came about. It was obviously quite a big thing for someone where I came from to be scouted to play for Man United. So it was an amazing experience and I didn't really really understand that I'd get the opportunity to do that. To, to be scouted was a huge thing back then. So it was a real proud moment in my life. Was that a pressure when you realised you were being scouted by Man United and that was a potential opportunity? As you say, it was an excitement thing, but did you feel a bit of pressure in terms of when you were stepping out on the pitch and you knew the eyes were on you? Yeah, I don't think you. I think yeah, sort of at that them sort of ages, the pressure wasn't really there. It was just a case of being amazed that I was actually pulling on a red shirt at 14 years old and playing for him. I think it was a pressure in terms of I was a real quiet, shy lad, so I was always a bit nervous and had a lot of trepidation about travelling up to Manchester. But because it was the biggest club in the world, it was the club that all the every kid in the country wanted to play for because of the reputation it had, particularly at that time, that it was um, such an amazing experience to go up there. And then as soon as you go up there, in terms of being really quiet and shy and sort of not wanting to mix that much, I sort of come out of that straight away because of the environment at the club. The second you, you went up there, everyone was so 
pleased to see you. You were made to feel so important. It was just an amazing feeling. And from that first trip up to Manchester in the, in the school holidays, I couldn't wait after that to keep going up there every weekend, every school holiday. I used to, I couldn't wait to get back up there. I think, well, whenever we have a former player on, I think almost the main topic we all sort of gravitate towards is Sir Alex Ferguson. Just as a young player, first year arrival, but also we'll, we'll get into your time sort of in the first team a little bit later, but especially on your arrival, what was Sir Alex Ferguson? Did you have any interaction with him, like your first meeting with him? Did you sort of, were you in awe of him when you first saw him? Yeah, the first time when I went up on that trial for the first week, we trained for the week, like with the with the YTS players, the other kids that were up there of a similar age and then at the end of the week we played a game against Nottingham Forest at the Littleton Road training ground and Sir Alex was there which was obviously a massive thing when you see mm. an under 14 under 15 game and Sir Alex Ferguson's on the side of the pitch after that game they took us all there was like probably about 12 14 of us kids from around the country that had traveled up for the trial they took us back to the train station and I got the train back to where I lived and my mum picked me up from the train station and said when she picked me up that Sir Alex Ferguson had phoned her up that afternoon to ask if I'd ask her permission for me to sign for the club on schoolboy form. So when you hear that at 14 years old, it's yeah. it makes you feel 50 foot tall. It's an incredible feeling and obviously spending time with a man from then, he was the relationships that he'd build with everyone was incredible. I remember being up at the club as a, a first team player in the canteen at Carrington and there'd be under 10, under 11 academy players there. And Sir Alex would know every single one of their names. He'd know their parents' name. He'd know a little detail about all of them. The way he treated people was the genius of the man, really. You wanted to, to do more than you could for him you wanted to run further than you thought you could you wanted to work harder than you thought you could because he made you feel so special and made you feel that you were part of that incredible football club at the time I think he used to treat the the dinner ladies the kit men just as well as he'd treat Ryan Giggs or Roy Keane he'd, what everyone at that club in that time was pulling in the same direction for him and for the success of the club. And I think that was why he had such an incredible success because of his relationships with everyone there, first and foremost. Do you think a part of that as well, first off, that is just being a good person, a polite person, respectful. But do you think also a part of that is his, the football brains, part of his brain saying, well, I need to sort of, as you say, get something out of these players. And just a little thing of knowing someone's name, knowing a parent's name, is something that will stick with a player and it will just maybe subconsciously have just sort of a positive impact on their development as a player? Yeah, 100%. That knowing he knew how to get the best out of people and it was uh, the tiny details meant so, so much. I can't imagine any other manager in the in the world really that knows every single one of their youth team players will, will go to the trouble of if anyone's got a problem at the club, he'll make contact with him to make sure everything's all right. He just had a that intelligence of knowing that the most important thing in any organisation probably is the leader's ability to build relationships with those underneath him, which he'd done incredibly, incredibly well. Yeah, no, definitely. We'll get into a little bit now, sort of your time as a youth team player at United. And obviously coming through sort of the, the treble seasons, obviously you before your debut from memory. 
was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. so you're coming into potentially the best team in the world, so many established stars, but we look at that Man United team and we still think they had a sort of very young team, all these young players who came through in terms of the class of 92. However, by that time, they were quite well established. And I think from memory, maybe you can jog on memory if there's someone else, but it was pretty much only you sort of bouncing in and around sort of that young player breaking into the first team because the team was so well established. It pretty much picked itself every week over those couple of seasons. I'm just thinking what it was like for you as a young player trying to break into that first team where, okay, who do you want to take? Do you want to take Ryan Giggs' place or David Beckham's position? Like it's almost mission impossible. But as a youth team player, United, Stralix Ferguson would have sort of, you would have had that drive as a goal for you to achieve. Yeah, I think because because of the class of 92, because of what they achieved and them establishing themselves into the first team, it gave everyone else hope because that that's what that was a pathway that they took because they'd have a, they'd achieved what they'd achieved it made the the youth team players that come through after them thinking that it is possible we can do what they've done so I think they were a massive part of why everyone wanted to be a part of Manchester United in terms of the the younger players that wanted to sign there because there was an opportunity for them there was belief that you could go and play in the first team I think when I was in the youth team, that sort of 16 to 18, I never really trained with the first team that much because there was no need for the younger players to really be rushed or put through them because the club was in such a great state because I just won the travel, treble. The squad was big. The squad was strong. I think it was after my two years as a scholar, as a youth team player, I made my debut in the, in the Worthington Cup when I was 18 against Aston Villa, but that was the only game that I really played. The season after, I went on loan to Belgium, went and played for Royal Antwerp. And it was off the back of that season when, when I came back from my loan where I was thrown in and around the first team. And it was, um, like you said, it was Beckham and Giggs were the players playing in my position. I was so sort of not starstruck, but so surprised. When I came back from Antwerp, I thought I was going to be put just back in the reserve squad to, to train there. But to go into the first team, it was a, a real whirlwind of, of a season and really pinching yourself every morning that you're in a dream because you're training. You've never really been in around it, but now you're training with these world, world-class world players day in, day out. So it was um, certainly thrown in at the deep end from when I um, returned from Royal Antwerp. Well, you just mentioned that in terms of going to Antwerp. One of our listeners, um, he from the Perth Supporters Club over here in Australia, said, from Ian over in Perth, said, when a player is out on loan, how do you adapt into the loan club? Are you treated the same as any other player? And does it affect your view of your parent club? But when they send you on loan, so maybe what's that interaction or communication like? And yeah, how did, how did you settle in Antwerp? Yeah, so I, when I went to Antwerp. I played my two years as a youth team player and had a really good spell, like a really good two years, played really well for the youth teams, reserve teams, and then signed a professional contract and went home for the summer at the end of my second year as an apprentice and probably thought that I was, um, I'd made it then and was probably a bit too big for me boots, probably didn't do what I should have done in terms of training over the summer, was rather go out with my friends and tell them all that I was now a professional football player at Man United. So when I came back, that following season, I weren't in good enough shape to really compete. I was nowhere near the first team where I think the club and Sir Alex thought 
I'd probably be around the first team then, but I was so far away in terms of fitness and my attitude wasn't right that they, I was nowhere near the first team. So they decided to send me on loan to, to Royal Antwerp, which I was delighted about really, because it gave me the opportunity to, to play football. So they invited me over to watch a game first. And I think they played a cup game against one of the top teams in Belgium and the stadium was full up. It was a real European atmosphere. There was all the, the smoke bombs going off in the crowd. The fans were, were mad. It was so noisy. And I was thinking it really whetted my appetite. And I couldn't wait to get out there and play in front of these fans. And my first experience of playing regularly in first team football, when I played my first game, I scored a goal and all the crowd was singing my name. And it was, it was mad because it's the first time I'd played in front of a real big crowd, apart from obviously the the one game against Aston Villa and it, it made me feel so good, so alive to be playing first team football. And I, I loved it out there. The, the, the fans took to me straight away. The, the players were really good to me. There was two other lads that from the youth team that were out there. We were all living in a hotel together away from home. It was sort of a, an incredible life experience as well as being an incredible football experience. So that lone move to Antwerp really put me and set me up in good stead to go and be a professional footballer. I think if that move didn't go as well as it did and I didn't do as well as I did, then it might have been a completely different story and I may have ended up never playing a game for Man United on my return. Yeah, well, very interesting. Thanks for answering that. But I just to sort of cast your mind back in terms of, you, you mentioned sort of going out with friends, etc. I remember hearing your story, I think if I read it in an interview or maybe a YouTube video, so you're speaking about it. But obviously, you're a youth team player during the treble winning season, and that um, obviously the famous night in Barcelona, the club did fly you out to Barcelona. And you had a bit of a day to remember. Obviously, not on the pitch, but um... yeah, it was um, it was obviously a strange day. Our, our season had finished in the youth team. We was all taken on buses. We was at Wembley on the Saturday, or I think it was a Saturday to watch the Newcastle game where we won the FA Cup. Then we was all flown out to to Barcelona on the day of the game like there was just loads of aeroplanes that had been chartered for the for the staff of the club so I think every single member of staff from Manchester United and that just shows what how the organisation treats its whole staff was flown out to um, to Barcelona then there was buses waiting for us at Barcelona to take us to a quite a posh fish fish restaurant if I remember correctly on the on the harbour at Barcelona and I think we had a table with a youth team lads and we started sneaking a few glasses of wine in and then one thing led to another and somehow we ended up on the in the middle of Barcelona drinking the old San Miguel or Estrella or what it, whatever it was back then and we got into a, we were all a bit worse for wear and we had a certain time where we had to be back at the restaurant to get back on our coach to take us over to the new camp I think we were a little bit late back and our bus had gone and we didn't know what to do. It was a bunch of probably 16, 18 lads, teenage lads were probably a bit worse for wear. Didn't know where the new camp was and we ended up on the um, the underground in Barcelona. I remember we was all sort of singing and dancing on the underground. Somehow managed to get to the stadium and got in the stadium. Then obviously the rest was history, really. It was such... Um, an amazing evening and for it to end how it did it was um, an incredible night and obviously such a 
wonderful part of Manchester United's history. Yeah, no, I think definitely. Well, not, not only the story, but yeah, definitely just being a part of the club during that time would have been, well, it would have been part of Man United at any stage in your career is going to be fantastic, but especially in that era when it's arguably the, the most successful period and most sort of memorable night in the club's history. I think everyone does yeah. have their own story, but their own story in and around the club must be um, very special. But we we'll want to just... Oh, sorry, you go on. No, I think that's the difference between maybe Man United and other clubs is how much the club make you feel you are part of it, mm. even though you're not playing in the game. But whether you're a fan, a member of staff, it is a massive thing about Manchester United that it is such a, a family club and everyone comes together and everyone celebrates that success and everyone is part of it. Yeah, no, I definitely agree 100%. Now, just moving on. I think one of the reasons a lot of our listeners said you'd be a very good guest, and I think any any former player will be a good guest, but in the, uh, recent weeks or recent months, actually now, throughout lockdown, I think we became aware of this, you obviously came out and spoke about sort of your mental health um, struggles when you were coming through as a young player. just want to pick your brain about that because I think I think all of us agree that issues like this aren't talked enough about, and full credit to you, I'm very brave to come out and sort of explain what you felt like at the time. But just a, a little bit about that and sort of... Yeah, okay, not only the challenges of coming through as a young professional football at the biggest club in the world, but also with your mental health issues, how much of it really did impact on your sort of progression or development as a player? Um, I think in terms of the impact it had on me as a player, it was it was more the stuff away from football than a player. I think football was always a release where that's what's on your mind, particularly when you're having to train with the best players in the world, you haven't, you can't really afford to not be fully focused on the game or on the training session. I think it was more away from the pitch where it affected my my life in a negative way, where it probably should have been the most incredible time of my life on and off the pitch. Probably it was slightly soured off the pitch because of what was going on in terms of how people spoke about me, the, the abuse that I used to receive. But at the same time, like people say, oh, it must have been, horrible horrible for you I don't think you realize it at the time because it's just your life it's just what's happening at that time because I didn't know obviously I made the point of tweeting about it saying it's always better to talk about your problems because obviously the situation we were in all over the world really within lockdown it was such a surreal situation where I'm sure everyone's mental health was fluctuating up and down and my point was if you talk about your problems, things get easier a little bit quicker. Whereas when I was in that situation where I was, my mental health was quite low and I was suffering with these, this abuse and these problems, I kept it all to myself and didn't talk about it at all because I was so embarrassed about it all. Whereas if I spoke about it, my, my time probably would have been better and I would have enjoyed my life more at that time. But not knowing how to deal with it was probably the biggest issue that I dealt with more than what I was actually going through. What was Man United like at the time in terms of, you say you sort of kept it to yourself and that's that's sort of a natural instinct sort of I think a lot of men have, but in terms of were United aware of maybe you struggling a little bit? What was your sort of communication like with them and were they sort of really positive and always lending a hand or were they sort of in the dark about it? They would have been completely in the dark. This is something that I kept sort of completely to myself. So I didn't speak to my mum or my dad or my girlfriend or my my family. I didn't speak to to anyone about it at all. I think I was, just, as I said, I was a real 
quiet, shy lad, and I wouldn't have never have gone into the club and sort of sought out someone to talk to and said, look, I'm going through this at the moment, which obviously would have been a better and more healthy way of dealing with things. But Manchester United didn't know that I was going through it. I'm sure they knew that I was suffering abuse, but Man United, every single player, if you if you don't play for Man United, if you don't support Man United, you don't really like them that much. So obviously all players suffer with bits and bobs and people will sort of abuse them in some way. But I didn't know. I thought this was just life. This is what it is being a footballer because I've never experienced anything different. This was my first time and I was playing for the biggest club in the world. I didn't have any training of how to deal with all the other stuff and that and the like. So it was probably such um, like a confusing situation because I thought it was something wrong with me. I thought, why is this affecting me so much? It's such a sort of childish schoolboy thing that things are school playground things people are saying to me, why can't I just brush it under the carpet and just get on with things? But it did, it did really affect me and make me feel really low and really anxious and not wanting to go out and the like. Yeah, I think that's definitely a thing. Like me, myself, I work in an all-girls school and we're completely aware and it's a huge issue amongst young girls that everyone needs to sort of come together to fight against in terms of sort of body image issues, etc. But I think it is sort of swept under the carpet in regards to maybe men, maybe don't affect them as much. I think everyone, each individual case is different, but it definitely is there with men. And I, I think especially in a sporting environment, um, it's there. There's a real physical aspect to it. I know yourself there, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast. I don't think any of us are in the position where we have to go and sit next to someone like David Beckham at work, who yeah. like, you can laugh about as a guy, but yeah, he's um, almost sort of perfection there. And I think that is, while we can all have a laugh about it, that is something that is going to play on someone's mind when they are struggling a little bit in terms of outside interference or outside perception of their appearance, etc. It is something that's naturally going to weigh on you when you go into a change room. I remember when you go into a change room first time in a, in a senior team, when you're showering in the younger grades, you've got your shorts on, but suddenly you walk into a first team shower and everyone's naked. That, that's a thing that young men have to go through in terms of the sporting um sort of in a sport in the sporting world so just your thoughts on okay you didn't really communicate it with the players in terms of your troubles what were the players like in and around you like the media and the fans obviously gave you this abuse but were the players I would say rally behind you but it was never even discussed it was just you were just one of the players yeah no always like all players that come into the dressing room at Man United were either if they were signed or they came up for a youth team it was always such a excuse me, such a welcoming environment. You felt part of it straight away, really. There was never any issue where I was made fun of inside my own dressing room. Obviously, there's always a bit of banter and that sort of thing, but you could say your bit back. It was it was a, a brilliant dressing room, which it, I'm sure you can imagine it had to be because you don't get the sort of success that that team got if the dressing room weren't a harmonious and real positive environment but at the same time a real environment where you were driven every day for to work as hard as you possibly can for yourself but also for the group to carry on the the success that you were having obviously it was light-hearted moments where you'd have a laugh and all that but when you were there to to work you had to work hard yeah no definitely just a last thing on this issue in terms of okay it's going on it's coming on to 20 years ago 
um, I think it was just on the news today, it's 20 years since Sydney won the Olympics. That's why I remember 2000 was 20 years ago. But um, how do you think you would have coped in terms of now? Because 20 years ago, there was no social media where now if a young player is coming through, they can't escape the news. Remember, it was maybe very easy in terms of if a player didn't want to hear about their performances, a player didn't have to go and buy the paper from the news agents. But now players, and it's not, it's not a criticism, but people live on their phones. It's impossible to escape the news. You would have been completely, it would have been a completely different beast if it was happening now. So just wondering, now that sort of men know, that, okay, there are avenues you can talk to people, do you still think it would be much harder now to be going through than what you did in 20, 20 years ago? Or do you think it was almost worse 20 years ago when you almost had no information about mental health? Yeah, I think things would be better now because of all the information that we've had. It's so much more accepted to come and talk about your mental health. I think in terms of where I suffered the abuse on television programmes, newspapers, etc. I don't think that would happen now that we're 20 years down the line. I think that wouldn't happen because we do live in a, a different world where that wouldn't be accepted. Obviously, on social media, that these sort of things still happen a lot. I think the difference with social media, there's the, the positive side of it as well, whereas 20 years ago on a TV show, on a newspaper, you only see a negative side of it. I think you'd receive more support in this day and age on the social media, although there'd be people out there that would give you the abuse, which still do. I think I saw, you see things on the social media all the time, Ian Wright, Wilfred Zahar receiving the most awful mm. racist abuse and things said to him, which in the future that has to be better policed and there can't be a way of people just getting to someone so easily of sending them direct messages like that, which is obviously an issue, but I do like to think we have moved forward as people and it would be easier probably in this day and age to, to deal with such things. Although it would obviously the challenge would still be there because of the, the size of social media and how easy it is to just say something about someone where you could really affect them negatively. And that's the, the challenge that we're all facing now. Yeah, no, definitely. But just as you mentioned Twitter, before we go on to the football, you just mentioned Twitter there. We all know everyone, all our listeners involved in football Twitter. And they say it can be a positive place, but a lot of the time it is a dark place. It is a negative place. But I urge anyone who's not following you on Twitter to go and follow you. We'll leave it all in our, in our podcast links and all our tweets. I think you do do a good job in terms of it is such a positive account and you do like, have a joke with everyone, but it is just refreshing to see because so much of football Twitter is just bombarded with abuse like someone will post something and everyone will have to disagree just for the sake of it but i think what you do with your twitter account um it's honest it's funny it's real it's some it's a former player who's been there and done it um so keep it up i think a lot of us um should take a, a little bit of knowledge from your twitter account so we'll, we'll put your uh, tweet uh twitter account in the podcast tweet but i'm um, on to football you just mentioned your debut against aston villa in the carling or i call it the carling cup what was it called at the worthington cup I think it was a Worthington Cup back then. I think that was a Worthington Cup game against so, Aston Villa. How did the debut come about in terms of were you in and around training with the first team? Were you called up all of a sudden or did you have much notice? And just a little bit about your debut and your memories. Yeah, so we're training at the time. We trained the first team trained at the Cliff and the youth team trained at Littleton Road. But everyone would get changed at the Cliff training, training ground and then drive over to Littleton Road. That day... We was playing on the Tuesday, so we'd all played for the youth team on the on the Saturday, and sort of because we knew it was the Worthington Cup week, 
we knew there'd be opportunities because the manager always used to play some of the young players. So on that Monday in training, there's probably about six or seven of us youth team players that were told to stay at the cliff and train there. So obviously we knew we were going to be in the squad for the next day. And I think we were told that we were starting in a training session. So it was obviously an incredible feel. I remember leaving the cliff to walk home to my digs that were on Littleton Road. It was about a mile or so away. So when I was walking home, it was just, I had a big smile on my face thinking, I can't believe I'm going to play for Manchester United tomorrow in a first team game. So it was obviously a, a an excitement going to sleep that night. And then the next day we travelled to Aston Villa, had our dinner, pre-match meal in like a real posh hotel, which obviously we weren't, us youth team lads weren't used to that, weren't used to this sort of five-star treatment. Then to Villa Park, went out to the stadium and had a look at the, the ground and it was it's such an amazing stadium, like walked on the pitch and then the game was such a whirlwind. I think we got beat, I think it was 3-0 in the end. We was a real young team. I think there was me, John Greening, Richie Wellens, Dave Healy, I think Ronnie Woolworth. There was a fair few players that were making a debut or sort of playing one of their first games. And Villa was strong that day. And I remember it so clearly because playing for Aston Villa was um, Dion Dublin, who was one of my big heroes growing up because I was a Cambridge United fan. And he was a, when he signed for Man United from Cambridge United, it was obviously mad to think that I was on the pitch playing against someone who I used to, sit in the stadium and watch week in week out so it really hit home that what an achievement it has been to sort of this journey coming and play when you were a kid at in 9 10 11 all you'd be happy just to play one first team game it was always a dream to to play in front of that crowd at a stadium like that so I remember sitting in the dressing room after the game and Sir Alex was talking to us saying don't think it's acceptable that you've come to Aston Villa and got beat regardless if you're a young team you're representing Manchester United these are games that you should be coming here to win but no matter what he said I just remember inside having a massive smile because I couldn't believe that I'd played for Man United then Bobby Charlton come in the dressing room after the game and it was just so surreal to to be managed by a legend like Alex Ferguson a legend like Bobby Charlton shaking Andrew you're in the dressing room after the game and it was such a incredible feeling and sitting on the bus on the way home just so satisfied obviously disappointed that you'd lost the game but at the same time you'd you've done what you've always dreamed to do of playing a game in professional football no definitely it's good to hear sort of okay disappointing obviously lost the game but to have such I think everyone that playing for me you know, would have a positive memory or positive feelings towards their debut but to see you sort of speak about Okay, three 0 loss, but it's only good memories. The the loss is really okay, worth in the cup we lost, but it was just um such pleasing memories. But um on to when I think Luke Chadwick, when it sort of springs to mind, I think Luke Chadwick, my first memory that comes to mind is the goal at Elland Road. Leeds, I'm just we'll get into winning the Premier League, but in terms of on pitch, your personal highlights at United, does that rank up there or in your opinion, what are sort of your sort of favourite memories in the first team? I think on the pitch, the, the best favourite, best moments for me would have been obviously the goals that I scored, the one at Bradford. But like you mentioned there, probably the biggest goal I scored was at Leeds playing in such a, 
a big game in su against such big rivals and to score a goal. Don't get me wrong, it was by no means a great goal, but to <laughs> do that was obviously an incredible feeling. And then celebrating like a lunatic running around and getting congratulated by some of the best players in the world. It was um, an amazing feeling. I remember after the goal, I think, I don't know how long was left, probably about half hour, and I was just hoping and praying that Leeds wouldn't score and no one else had scored for us. So it went down as 1-0 and I'd scored the winner. But I think Baduka scored an equaliser right near the end, which obviously ruined it a little bit. But to have scored against Leeds is obviously a, a huge achievement and something that I'm sure I will, people, if they do remember me for anything, it will be that goal because it was such, against such a big rival. Well, where do you stand on the rivalry in terms of, okay, everyone's almost forgotten about Leeds, but they're obviously back in the Premier League now. And we, we always talk about Arsenal, Liverpool, City and these intense rivalries. I think a lot of people are forgetting what Man United and Leeds was like. I'm just thinking if you can just sort of give that first-hand experience of someone who's played at Ellen Road in an intense derby like, or intense rivalry like that, um, just a little bit of an insight into sort of what it actually is like. Yeah, obviously on the pitch you can feel the the rivalry you can feel the hostility from the <clears throat> from the Leeds fans when you certainly when you're warming up before you go on maybe can't hear it as much when you when you're on the actual pitch I think in terms of I was at an old Trafford game as a youth team player and outside the stadium you could there was such a a real hatred before the fans there was you could see sort of the police separating them stuff being thrown and that which is obviously completely unacceptable but you just sort of field rivalry. I think it was different because when you're a youth team player or a schoolboy player in my time at United, because Leeds was in a different sort of area, you, you never played against them. So as a youth team player, I never played against Leeds United. I played against them in a reserve team game once at Ellen Road and there was like 25,000 fans there. I think Lee Sharp was playing for Leeds. It was just after he'd signed. And then I think you recognise then what a rivalry is when you get over 20,000 fans in a reserve team game. I think, for me, you notice it more against Liverpool because you play them all the time when you're a kid in the youth teams and it's set up like this is a massive game. We don't like each other. And then in the reserves and then in first team games, you sense it. The Leeds one, I didn't really notice it until playing in the reserve team game. And then obviously being around it on a first team game, you real feel the, I don't know if hatred's the right word to say, but you can feel the rivalry between the two sets of supporters so much as you're walking into the stadium and obviously when you're in the stadium as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Now, yeah, okay, the individual moments, which obviously you cherish, but I think one thing that would obviously stick out for yourself and obviously United fans, obviously winning the actual Premier League title, just a memory or two of that day in terms of going out and collecting the medal and actually lifting the trophy? Yeah, I remember that day my whole life, I'm sure. I remember, I think we was all lined up. We, I think we lost to Derby at Old Trafford. I think we'd won the league like a fair few weeks before we were getting a trophy that day. And I think I was one of the, I think I was like third or fourth to be handed the trophy. And I sort of remember lifting it up and I didn't realise that the lid came off. <laughs> So I sort of tilted it as it come up and the lid fell off the trophy, banged on the top of my head and fell on the floor. So it was one of them moments where you want the ground to swallow you up. And I quickly got down on the floor and put the lid back on and handed the trophy to the next person as quickly as I possibly could. So it was certainly 
that certainly made it memorable. I don't know how many people saw it, but I'll always remember it of the day I um, nearly broke the Premier League trophy. I don't know if they had to change it the next year because the lid was all bent up. Mm. And I think some, maybe someone like Ryan Giggs, David Beckham, after their fourth or fifth title, it's a mistake they probably didn't make, but maybe they made it the first year when they first won it, yeah. maybe. I hope so. I tell, that's what I tell myself anyway. It's a mistake that anyone could have made. Well, just, just on, the, on the title win, and I want to get your thoughts, and you can answer this as a football fan, as a Man United player, or sort of as a, just a professional football in general. I'd love to get your thoughts, because I think every Man United fan has used this in a debate, in a Man United v Liverpool debate, and just how, when you became aware of it, almost the joke and slash meme of Chadwick won Gerard nil. In terms of, we've all used it as United fans. Whenever we're having a Skulls v Gerard debate, we always just sort of refer back to Chadwick won Gerard nil in terms of Premier League titles. Just wondering, were you aware about this? When did you become aware about it? And just your, just your general thoughts about it. Yeah, I've been aware about it for a for a fair few years. I remember I played for um, Cambridge United against Manchester United in an FA Cup game just before my football career came to an end. And I remember so many people sort of saying it then. That was probably about five years ago, and sort of it's always been something that's mentioned. I've, I never knew how to to really take it, to be honest with you. Like, in a sort of joke, obviously it's a jokey sort of thing. I could never, mm. ever say that I was anywhere near the player or had the career that Steven Gerrard had, who's obviously a wonderful football player. But it's whether, sort of, it was Chadwick won Gerrard nil, and the, the joke was sort of, How's he like because I'd actually won at the trophy and he hadn't, so that's it. Was always sort of do I see it like that? But it was, it's always it is a joke's a joke, and yeah. I'm, I'm happy to have to be in a position where I've won more Premier League trophies than Steven Gerrard, so it's all good with me. It's all good with me, yeah. No, drink it in, but um, you just mentioned there, and I think it may be a good way to finish the podcast, or you know, in terms of wrapping it up, you just mentioned that picture there with Cambridge. Um, going back to Old Trafford to play United in the FA Cup. One of our listeners and members of the supporters club here in Sydney, Josh, was at that game. I mean, just um, got your just to get your thoughts, how did you feel coming back to Old Trafford as a Cambridge player and what did you make of the reception he received? Yeah, it was absolutely incredible. It was the first time I'd ever come back to Old Trafford as a player. So I'd never, for the, all the other clubs that I played for, I never played against Manchester United. So... Obviously, it was a big thing for Cambridge because we were a League Two club with not much money. So it was an opportunity. It saved the club, really, in terms of financially and being able to stay in business. So when I came back, it was... I didn't know if anyone... There was quite a lot in the press beforehand because I'd played for for Man United at the start of my career. But in terms of the fans, I didn't even realise... I weren't expecting any sort of reception. Obviously, I didn't... Achieve. I won the Premier League, weren't a massive part of that squad, but didn't achieve a huge amount as a Manchester United first-team player. So I weren't even sure who had even, <laughs> if anyone had even known I was really. So I remember playing in the game and getting subbed off. I actually remember before the game, we were told that I was, I was told I was starting. I was playing on the left wing. We had the Man United team and I was playing against Paddy McNair, was playing right back for United. And I remember sitting on the bus going from the hotel to Old Trafford. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to sort of roll back the years tonight. I'm going to be the best player on the pitch. Paddy McNair is obviously a good young player, but I'm going to sort of twist him up, keep running past him, maybe score a goal or something. Like, I come on the pitch real 
confident. I, I remember within 10 minutes of the game, I'd spent the whole 10 minutes, I'd not kicked the ball and I was chasing Paddy McNair back. He was a lot quicker than what I was. And I was, um, my legs had sort of gone after about 15 minutes. I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to come off here after 20 minutes. I managed, I managed to hold on till about 50, 55 minutes. I didn't have a, I certainly didn't have a massive impact on the game, but coming off the pitch, I got a standing ovation from the the Old Trafford crowd, which was like it was one of the most amazing things I've ever experienced. Makes sort of the the hairs on the back of your neck stand up to have received that from the best, like the most incredible. It just shows what the football club is. Such an amazing football club, and to be to get that for a, a bit part player from. 15 years ago, what it probably was back then, but to be remembered, it made me feel so good and I couldn't thank the the fans that were there that night enough because it was um, it was fantastic of them. Yeah, I think definitely, which you mentioned before, I think even just little things, United, as big as United are, as a global brand, whatever you make of it, the sort of exposure of the club, but at its core, it still does have a family feel about it. There's almost, there's, dis, there's a big disconnect between the fans and the actual club itself, but at its core, there still is that feeling. And um, I think that's good to hear that um, obviously it is positive memories going back to Old Trafford and you're almost a little bit hesitant in sort of not knowing what the reception would be like, but to get a positive one um, is obviously very good. Now, before we finish up, um, just your, if you want to give it a little plug and just tell us what you're doing these days in terms of you're a director at the Football Fun Factory. Yeah, so I'm involved in an organisation now called the Football Fun Factory. I'd as the name would suggest, it is around delivering fun football sessions for children. We've, um, we're not a development company. We're not making professional kids. We purely are trying to develop a love of football for children between 2 and 12 years old and using football as a, as a vehicle, really, to develop really positive life skills like teamwork, communication, sportsmanship. So we'll celebrate these qualities more than we'll celebrate someone scoring 20 goals or incredible football skills. It is really about developing people and positive human qualities as much as it is around football development. So our aim, our lofty ambition is to become the the biggest football coaching organisation in the world. So we are currently growing our, our, it's a franchise organisation. So we're growing our programmes all over the UK at the moment and hopefully in the future, we hope to be all over the world. And we have quite a bright, this is a badge here, but we have a quite a bright blue and yellow football kit that the kid the kids wear. So we're hoping to see millions and millions of kids eventually running around, playing football, and most importantly, just having fun doing it. Yeah, no, well, definitely. As I, said, I'm, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I work in an all-girls school. We work from like the kindergartens to the year six. And I just say 99% of it, is just about getting the ball and just it's nothing to do with football. It's just about getting them fit, getting them active, something they enjoy, takes their mind off things. And obviously, if they do progress on to become a great player, that's fantastic. But I think at its core, football can be used as a tool just to just to enjoy it and just to something different because we all live on our phones these days. It's a different world to when we grew up as kids. So I think yeah, football is probably the best tool in terms of creating good people, creating a positive atmosphere, creating good health. So um, very good. We'll leave a... Um, like in the podcast tweet, we'll leave the link to the Twitter account of Football Fun Factory, I'm sure on Facebook and Instagram as well. 
But just before we wrap up, um, Luke, just, well, first of all, thank you on behalf of our listeners uh, for coming on the podcast because I think we're just a small podcast. It started here in Sydney. However, we've had a few players on now. We've had Mark Bosnich on, we've had Ben Thornley, Jesper Olsen, and now yourself. From when we started this podcast, we couldn't believe it wasn't even mentioned we could ever get a former player on. So to have your time for 45 minutes has been an absolute privilege and we truly appreciate it. But also the supporters club as a whole in Sydney, Australia, um, just want to say thank you as well. And if ever the, I don't know, if the world opens back up eventually and people start to travel, if ever you find yourself in Australia, um, I'm sure one of the supporters clubs, whether it be Perth, Adelaide, Brisbane, us here in Sydney, um, we'll definitely um, have you for a, maybe a night at the pub watching a match if, if you ever find yourself in Australia. Thank you, Tom. I'll hopefully be able to take you up on that one day, but it's been a pleasure talking to you. No, an absolute pleasure. And um, hopefully everyone enjoyed that podcast, something a little bit different before the Crystal Palace match this weekend. Make sure you obviously go follow Luke and the Football Fun Factory on Twitter and Instagram. And um, please like this podcast, share it with any Reds you think might enjoy something a bit different compared to some sort of boring, tedious transfer news. But hopefully you all enjoyed it. And Larry and I will hopefully meet at a pub maybe on Sunday or Monday to discuss the Crystal Palace match and hopefully three points to discuss. So thank you, everyone, for again, and we'll chat to you then. Cheers. Bye.